This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim. And my name is Tom. And today we will be talking about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the 1920s silent horror German expressionistic masterpiece, in my opinion. Uh, but before we like delve deep into the film, uh, this is... This is only our second podcast, I think, in 2017. I think it is, yeah. I did actually release um, the Man with a Movie Camera, actually. So it's uh, technically our, it'll be our third release, but it's this, only the second time we've actually recorded this year. So we do need to crank things up. Absolutely. I've been, I've been busy with my master thesis and work. And, I mean, there's something about this year where watching films that i have to engage with uh, it's been really difficult for me uh, i need i just need to turn my mind off uh, in the evening and sometimes a silent film black and white german film that doesn't always tempt me as much <laughs> have you been bursting your way through the fast and the furious is that no not exactly it's about like, the, the peak of what you'd be able to take at the moment. i mean i don't think i've been watching less tv but i've been watching like crap tv series where i don't have to pay as much attention i don't have to invest as much so um but then again we've been talking about this many times i think that i i forget how rewarding it is watching a really good film versus just consuming tv basically Totally, yeah. And one of the things I found about this year was I was absolutely adamant I'm going to the cinema more. Like, like, there's no excuse. I mean, it, it, there is a plethora of places to watch films in Manchester. And the other day, for example, I, I went to go and watch Kelly Reichardt's film, Certain Women. And I was kind of, the screening started about half an hour after I finished work. And I was thinking of literally every single excuse I could come up with not to go to the cinema. And I was like, what on earth am I talking about? I love going to the cinema. It's great. And then pootled off down there, watched a film which I really enjoyed. And yeah, it was a really kind of thought-provoking film that I was kind of really pleased I'd seen at the cinema. I quite liked the fact that um, it was a little bit different and a little bit quirky from the kind of crap I'd been watching recently. And I just thought, this is this is why I go to the cinema. And, you know, I don't understand why I put up so many barriers in my head to doing it. Uh, cost, I suppose, is one of them because... It has become quite expensive going to cinema. But yeah, I, this year was, to me was all about getting back into watching and making myself, like setting aside the time, putting the mobile phone away and watching films. And uh, yeah, it's, it is, seems to be so far a uh, quite rewarding kind of approach to doing it. I don't know I don't know what's happened over the, over the years. I think my, my attention span has just become that of a child. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I can certainly feel it when I'm watching a TV that my attention span... It, it is definitely uh, shorter when I'm like tired or when I'm stressed out um, just from working on school and working the job I do. Um, there are things that like I take home with me or there are things that kind of stay with me even though I've put it aside. Um, and it's difficult then to concentrate on a film uh, that isn't or that demands concentration basically. No, totally so totally and also my i use maybe i use it as an excuse for my girlfriend is not that fond of watching black and white tv so <laughs> that is also i don't thing. have any i don't have any excuse um i'm completely on my own sadly i don't live with my girlfriend i'm, I'm the 
probably the archetypal sado that lives with these two cats so i have absolutely <laughs> no excuse but for me i i just kind of my mind starts to wander and i'm saying like oh did, did i wash up or is that you know is the washing machine finished just stupid stuff that can easily wait and i've just trained myself this year to say right that's it mm. enough's enough i'm gonna kind of give this film the attention that it deserves or not as is, is in some cases yeah and it, invariably when i do make that commitment the film is always better even though even if it the film isn't that great i know that my experience of it will just be uh that much better if i actually give it attention if i actually uh, engage with it so no totally yeah totally but moving on to this film at hand, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, do you do you have any recollection of your first meeting with this film? I think it must have been when I was at university. Yeah. So we're talking almost 20 years ago now. But I have to confess, I've not watched it since then. What? And I know, I know, I know. And I have to make the, another criminal confession as well, where when we agreed to do this show, I thought, oh, I can watch Murnau's The cabinet of dr caligari and of course it wasn't directed by Murnau. and this is the first kind of faux pas i made and going back to it last week i watched it and i thought am i being really thick or was that film really complicated for an hour and 20 minutes and i went actually away and i read the synopsis of the film and i was thinking have i missed something entirely with this and i went back and watched it i've watched it twice in the intervening weeks and i i decided again it is quite a complicated film for an hour and 20 minutes that the story itself um although it's not hard to follow it's kind of if you blink you will literally miss certain key moments of it and it really demands your attention mm. far more than i remember um when i first saw it many many years ago mm -hmm. i mean i can't i it must have been uni for me as well because i can't remember seeing it before that but i do remember that the visuals that is what stuck with me that black and white kind of jagged landscape with all those sharp angles and the weird tilted walls and those windows that look like knives you have those crazy stairs everywhere and the flooring that is just painted in black and white it was unlike anything i'd seen before at least to that like extreme degree i mean every tim burton film is is like this has served as an inspiration for all of his work but i remember really the visuals more than the story elements before revisiting it this time so yeah i as to like the plot of the story for a film that is about like it's about psychological motivations for the characters but it, it gives us very little if any actual descriptions of them but it seems to leave it up to the visuals and how we interpret them. They are conveyed in like this abstract visual way. And the plot, which is, for those who haven't seen the film, you should really do so because we're going to spoil it here. But it's a whodunit, basically, um, that is not, in my opinion, terribly intriguing. But I think that we know he transforms it into something that is kind of weird and uncanny especially when he reveals that Caligari is the head of the insane asylum so yes I mean my, my, like you say about the characters really is that the, the film has this kind of framing structure to it mm. and you have them kind of it's, it's Francis isn't it sat there talking on the bench and he kind of starts imagining his wonderful hometown and there's no real sort of 
you don't really know who this person is, what his backstory is, anything other than about him that he's featuring in this story. And I think, to me, it's all about the aesthetics. I, the, the kind of the issue that I've had watching it is that I'm not really particularly interested in what's going on. It's the visuals that really get me. It's the guy sat on, the, the clerk sat on a massive chair. Mm-hmm. It's the little kind of the, the things like that, which I think kind of appeal to me the most. And I find it hard not to be just distracted just by looking at it. Yeah. And then I find, I found myself having to try and catch up with the story and what was going on and the kind of the relationships between them. Um, it's, it's, it's certainly, it's one of the rare films, I think, where it certainly rewards you the more you watch it, but you have to put quite a lot in to get something out of it, and certainly in terms of the story. Mm. It doesn't really help that the the plot and the characters, they are really drawn in the like the broadest of strokes. I mean, these are archetypal characters in a mystery murder film, and we know next to nothing, as you said, about Francis or about Alan, his friend who dies within five minutes or Jane, who is, she's just a paper-cut, beautiful woman who everyone seemingly falls in love with. But we really aren't here to be entertained by this sort of, uh, I mean, it's like a Scooby-Doo story, really. We're here for the visuals. And also, I would argue we're here for the the themes of the film rather than the narrative of the film. I mean, most certainly, going going to the characters, there's no nuances to them. There's nothing that distinguishes them from any of the other they don't like you know, the guys don't bicker about who's won the football or you know, there's no sort of playful interactions between them every piece every scene is in service of what apparently people think is going on mm. i mean i know there's kind of like a um you know set up which one is she going to fall in love with type and we haven't even angles. seen jane by that point yes yeah I mean, we don't even aware who she was we don't know why the fact we don't know the relation are they all friends from school has she had romantic has she made kind of romantic gestures to one and not the other has one proposed to yeah there's nothing like (laughs) that you don't know you don't know anything about it other than the fact that yeah you know there's this woman they both like her and something really bad's going to happen to her and and, and off we go Hmm. and in a way i don't necessarily have a problem with that in terms of it doesn't kind of detract from my enjoyment of watching the film. I don't sit there thinking, like, I'd really like to find out more about these guys. <laughs> I just tend to kind of accept the fact that it is as is and off you go. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the thing that I would perhaps have against it is that it, it goes by so fast, some of these things, that it's, as you said, if you blink, you will miss it. Uh, and that usually relates to like motivations or like central uh, points to the story to understanding like the plot of the story and if you miss a line or two uh, then you probably will be left in the dark uh, at some point and so did, did it seem to you as well there was a lot of title cards in the film mm. there seemed to be I, I seem to detect or I don't know whether or not I was I mean a uh, you're talking to someone who, unfortunately, I don't watch a lot of silent films, so I can't really kind of comment on the title cards per minute ratio. Mm. But it did seem to me that there seemed to be a lot more than <clears throat> that I was typically used to. Yeah. And 
that was kind of like possibly kind of slightly detrimental to the fact because you're actually being told and not shown possibly that was something I, I, I found myself being consciously aware of yeah I mean comparing it to something like vampire uh, this is like uh, easy peasy <laughs> compared to that yeah. film but yeah, I also watched uh, Madame Dubry the Ernst Lubitsch film uh, in preparation for this because I wanted to see like what were the other German films around this time like and in that film I felt that uh, I think you are right in saying that this film does certainly have more than its contemporaries I would argue yeah yeah so I mean like again it, there is a bit of a black hole in my um, film watching vocabulary mm. and certainly silent cinema is of that um, it, it, it is in there but uh, it, it was it was just other little things as well like the, the Caligari figure you know this kind of mysterious guy who suddenly appears and I, I couldn't this perhaps sounds a bit kind of nitpicky but I couldn't really work out where the insane asylum was in relation to the town and oh it's over the hill over the hill and on right. the right yeah Right, okay, but I mean, I was sort of like thinking, and, and no one, no one really knows who this guy is. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, do you know? I mean, it seemed like sort of, it was. I mean, again, it's, it's. I, I hesitate to say it's kind of poor storytelling. It was just perhaps I was trying to trying to, I was trying to try and work the film out more than it needed to be worked out. I think yeah. that was the kind of the, the clumsy point I'm trying to make. But I think we can talk about the like the historical context first because this is absolutely this is post-war Germany who are devastated after the loss in World War I. And the Weimar Republic, they have replaced the imperial government. And Germany, they are facing like strict financial economic sanctions from allied nations. They are facing massive shortages in resources. 700,000 Germans died of hunger in the post-war period. Uh, the morale and spirits of those who survived, they like shattered and it is a time for reflection and many turned like dejectedly inward um, and during also this time you have to remember that there was an Austrian a favorite of mine who at the time was working on a field that became incredibly popular psychoanalysis and that is also focusing on this power of the the subconscious, the depths of the human mind, and all this is kind of in the ether, as you say, when this film is coming about. Most certainly. I mean, and the other thing as well, from a kind of an industry point of view, um, there really, at the birth of cinema, there wasn't very much being made in Germany. It was mainly, um, as I understand, it, it was many French films that were, sort of, were being shown in Germany and in other European films. And when the war started, um, it was exclusively, it was kind of the birth of the German film industry, mm. uh, as it were. Um, you know, they didn't obviously want, for obvious reasons, didn't want to kind of uh, import foreign films. And they kind of started this, you know, national cinema and it stands to reason utterly that it would reflect the psychosis of the state at the time um i think it's when you think about the first world war it was billed as the war to end all wars this was the european superpowers almost kind of they've been brewing for, for many many years anyway and it was to decide effectively who was going to rule the world afterwards mm. And it was, I mean, the reason why Germany lost was economic mainly. Um, it was obviously being landlocked. It, it was managed to be kind of starved into uh, submission. And 
I mean, obviously you have the kind of influenza epidemic starting around this time in Europe. I mean, a, a, a staggering amount of people died. And you have this merging of two art forms, really. Well, in fact, three actually, um, theatre, art and film. And the byproduct of this is Dr Caligari. And you have all these different styles and people expressing, I suppose, trying to kind of genuinize through art mm-hmm. the feeling of the nation and it, it completely stands to reason that i mean just the opening shot of the of the town that the film is taking place on this isn't your picturesque postcard germany i mean germany is a beautiful country and it has many beautiful towns and cities and villages this is something altogether far more disturbing it looks like it's I mean, it's, it's going to have obviously kind of got straight angles, but this doesn't look like a welcoming place mm. at all. It looks like a deeply scary, um, frightening place in which to inhibit. And it, it, it's fascinating to me because the, the other thing you kind of forget about, Calico, it didn't look like anything that was coming out at the time either. No. And to this day, to a degree. No, I, I mean, expressionism, that came as a response to impressionism. Uh, and impressionism as an art form, it strived to create reality as is. Whereas expressionism, um, it, instead of reproducing the world, it really focuses on our feelings and our perceptions and giving expression to things that are like beyond words. And it seems very influenced by Cubist art, uh, like Salvador Dali, in a way that everything seems at times interconnected and also very cluttered. And it's very like dark and twisted and bizarre, the visuals we are seeing. So um, this, I mean, this is often touted as the first example of film German expressionism and paved the way for other films. But it really is an examination of the horrors in our own minds and are we really capable of those unspeakable acts of crime and certainly and what the other thing to, to, to remember the film is that it, it doesn't have any interest in presenting a reality as you might expect in films no. it, it, it completely does away with any sense that you're well, it's, it's it's aware of its own artifice and it celebrates it, its own artifice and i mean you need only look at things like um the doors on buildings they're not uniform doors they're completely bent and stretched and pulled and i mean you could kind of go into that and kind of say that the reality for these people was so skewed by what had happened mm. that almost almost the kind of how they were perceiving it was completely different from the actuality of the world they were living Mm -hmm. in. And German Expressionism, I mean, you couldn't really experiment with that sort of narrative within um, a realistic visual, I would argue. You had to have this kind of experimentation of the unconscious, of the impulses, of our own twisted desires and fixations. And... Portraying real anxiety in a markedly different way from films that came previous, just to show how how bizarre and abstract this really is. Well, would you think the film would work if it was shot on location? Mm, I think it would have lost much of its edge. I would argue. Yeah, totally. I mean, I I, I don't think you would be. I don't think it would be unsettling. No, exactly. As as it is, I don't think you would be. You, I mean, it's almost communicating to the viewer yeah. that it's telling you just by 
the sets and the buildings that this is this is a comp- that something's very wrong mm-hmm. in this world and it's not only like it's not only a reflection of the characters and the narrative and their thoughts and emotions but it's also meant to elicit an emotional response from yourself uh, through like emotional power instead of an aesthetic value totally yeah i mean i yeah i mean i i i i mean kind of defining it in terms of its genre i know we can say oh it's german expressionism but i think that's a very loose term anyway yeah. i think it's quite i don't think i think you'd be um tripping yourself up if you try to kind of define it um with 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 any kind of kind of authority but it's when i go into it it's almost like you're watching in a way, in a kind of crazy way, I don't know if you've seen the new Doctor Strange film. Yeah, I have, yeah. In which reality gets bent and stretched and... The better version mashed. of Inception. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a controversial thing. <laughs> but um, it kind of reminded me of that in the fact that I, I felt I was watching someone else's nightmare. That was my... Or someone else's dream. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was in someone's imagination. And of course, in, in the context of the film, you are in a way because Dr. Caligari is completely manipulating the situation to his own end. Hmm. And I would say, even though we've been like slagging off the narrative here, um, there's still this theme throughout the narrative of um, sanity versus insanity. We don't know that we are watching a film from the perspective of someone that is portrayed as an insane person, we presume that he is insane at the end of the film, and it could be argued that he is an unreliable narrator, but we don't really know if his um, insanity came before he told this story or whether it is as a result of this true story that he's telling. Yes, this is one of the areas where I became quite confused with him because of the framing device at the start. Um, obviously we find out that's in the asylum mm-hmm. and like, like you said it, it is in the absence of who these of what this character are there is no backstory mm-hmm. we don't know whether you know he's a, i mean uh, we don't know whether he's, he's addled on morphine or something like that there's just you know you're, you're not given any indication as to as as what is and i know we kind of like i mean we sound like we're being divisive of the story i mean it is it is fairly complex. Yeah. I think it's probably character. I think it's probably character, which is what we're really trying to make the point of that they are. They're not. They're not. They're not. There's no attempt to develop them, as we've said, or kind of give them any kind of backstory. But I mean, it layers. It's like, um, I guess, in a way, it's like the film Nocturnal Animals, which which I was particularly fond of. I mean, in fact, you have kind of stories within stories, mm. and there's a kind of overlapping, and it, some of it's reality, some of it's not reality. But you never in some instances what's recollection or what is actually fact and like we said like they said you don't know whether francis is he just kind of he's just making this story up as he goes along and it's an interesting kind of you know he's just doing it to pass the time Mm. you don't know i mean it my i guess it reminded me of shutter island Mm. in a bit in a way and again i mean to, to even kind of be talking about the kind of complexities of a kind of a psychological thriller horror film so uh i mean this is like so what film's been going for what 25 years it does seem a remarkably intellectually challenging film absolutely there's also um, there's also the point to be made that all flashbacks and memories are indeed subjective and this kind of serves as a reminder of this fact that it merely subjectivizes the story from the perspective of the narrator um so that all things we are 
talking about and all things we are seeing, that it will always be a subjective point of view. Totally. I mean, if you watch a film like Rashomon, it's the same kind of a, a same kind of tactics mm-hmm. as news, isn't it? Because in Rashomon, you're never sure. There's three different versions of the event. Um, interestingly, each version of the event, everyone seems to be taking, they're not trying to exonerate themselves. They seem to be taking full responsibility for what's actually happened. But you get three different stories about one event and you're never quite sure which one's what, who's, who, who do you believe and who, who do you trust? And with this, I, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's, I, I don't know if, a, if the, the screenwriting intention was to go to that level of complexity. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I think it's, I, I would like to find out more. I mean, I wonder if there's an original screenplay laying around somewhere that could, could kind of clarify that. So I've not read anything to, to suggest that, that they were kind of aiming for that. But it's one of the, it's one of, but by virtue of the settings and how the film looks, you know you're not watching something which is supposed to represent any kind of reality that you know. Hmm. I mean, um, I've read quite a bit about the, the historical development of this film, and it was written by two um, writers who both served under the World War I, um, and Hans Janowitz and Karl Meyer, um, they both were apparently inspired by experiences from their own lives. Um, and they are described as like two pacifists who became distrusting of authority after the experiences in World War I. And Janowitz, he served as an officer, but um, the experiences he uh, endured during the World War I, that left him kind of embittered with the military. And Maya, he didn't serve, as I said earlier, but he, f- he feigned madness to avoid military service. And then... Um, because he feigned madness, he, have to, he had to undergo intense examination from a military psychiatrist, and that left him also distrustful of authority. And in the light of this, Caligari he comes to kind of represent the, the German government uh, in the way that authority is Dr. Caligari. And Cesare, he becomes like the common man, the common soldier who is ordered to kill or conditioned to kill, basically. I totally. I mean, that's a really interesting um, you know, look at it. I mean, I, 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 I saw the fact that Caligari in the film had a... He seems to... He, he operates with almost total impunity mm-hmm. and people just seem to believe and do exactly what he says so that completely stands to reason. I mean, I, I didn't take the... the, the the, the, the idea that he's kind of turned this guy into a killer. I, I mean, I didn't kind of read into it that much, mm-hmm. as it were. I, just, I, I, I liked the fact that you have the um, that old familiar horror trope of the curse or the kind of the ancient story that you know, he might be this kind. He might be kind of taking inspiration from this. Uh, it, it's a kind of is it a medieval story or something like that about this, this Caligari figure who's stalking the countryside, having people picked off by this kind of zombie. Mm. Yeah, in the film he talks about like an Italian mysticist or something um, yes. that Dr. Caligari in the the present 1920s Germany, he is, uh, that is uh, what he wrote about for his doctorate or something, I think, or he, at least he studied it and he, he becomes like uh, completely engrossed in this story and it in an attempt to completely understand this Caligari mythical figure, he attempts to do the same now. Uh, so that is, that is basically his motivation, so to speak. But, I mean, how, how to understand it, how to, how to understand his 
I don't. I, I can't really. I can't really tell to what end he, if he wanted world domination, if he wanted domination of the mind, perhaps. I don't know. I mean, it's in a way as well. He kind of reminded me of the Joker in the Dark Knight, where he seems to be kind of just terrorizing people for the sake of terrorizing. Mm -hmm. I don't personally think that there is a master plan, or he's looking for some kind of. I don't think he's doing it for sort of megalomaniacal purposes i think he's doing it because he just likes to fuck around with people yeah literally get in their head this is the ultimate way sort of to fuck around with people oh totally yeah i mean it's brilliant you know the 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 way in which there's a fake body in the (laughs) i mean and it's so ghoulish as well isn't it this guy hasn't slept for years and yet somehow he's able to also predict the future as well i mean it's brilliant when he says you'll be dead in the morning yeah. <laughs> or, you know he says it'd be dead in the morning and it's yeah, such a brilliant way of control like i said it's just a way of controlling people and isn't it yeah to kind of plant that seed of doubt in their heads yeah. mm, one thing i was kind of struck by is that despite the the visuals they are like so bizarre and abstract and unnerving the camera is surprisingly like conventional I mean, the film the film opens with the title that this is a film in six acts, and that kind of speaks to its theatrical nature, as you were talking about before, and how they approached film as a medium, because it basically shows us sets and the actors. There's no, like, flourishes with the camera. It keeps alternating between medium shots, straight-on angles and close-ups, and these wide shots, where everything just... It just shows the movement and the shows the sets. And editing as well, there's very little like intercutting between characters. Most scenes they follow the they follow the other without like any sort of intercutting. No, there's no it doesn't cut within scenes. The camera doesn't move around mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, I, when I was watching it, I actually thought this film would play as a, a as a piece of mm-hmm. theatre. You, you, you wouldn't take much to kind of you know, if you had the set. Literally, all you need is a set. You'd need a you know a a set to come down and go up again. Wouldn't you? you wouldn't need anything anything more kind of complicated than no. that and that was one of the film's um major criticisms actually upon its release was that people felt it didn't really do enough to kind of um further cinema mm-hmm. it was quite um it was too stagey i think was was one of the common criticisms i mean it was university it seemed to be university kind of quite loved anyway but the, the dissenting voices did pick up on the fact that it didn't do much to kind of um yeah, further language cinema. And you think before that, we, you, we would have had like Birth of a Nation, which you think, as, as you're watching that film, it, it's virtually writing the language of cinema as we know it as the film's being made. And this seems like a very much a step back from all that. Mm. Um, it, it's, I, I, it, it's strange because I'm personally not in the least bit distracted by its artifice mm-hmm. at all. It doesn't impair the, the fact that it's cinematic credentials, so to speak, because you're not having kind of you know cityscapes and the the film's not um, obviously he's, he doesn't move the camera around much. That didn't distract from me at all. I felt I was more. I found myself kind of looking for the nuances. I found myself drawn to the performances a lot more actually as a result of that because I actually think the performances in this for a silent film are actually really mm-hmm. good. Yeah, I would totally agree. Even though. I mean, again, there are some archetypal performances like Jane and like Francis, who is one is the damsel in distress and one is the hero. But someone like um, Carl Veit, who plays the 
and the sleepwalker Cesare. I mean, his his movements are incredibly like balletic of sorts, and he he has this very feminine, non-normative movement in his way. Oh, totally. And you know, and actually, what it what, and I, and I'm not being sarcastic here, or I sound like I'm trying to take the piss, but one performance which I which is one of my favourite performances, and I think it's a genuinely brilliant performance is Arnold Schwarzenegger in the in the first Terminator film. Yeah. It's te- it's terrifying mm-hmm. watching him in that film and that isn't just because he's this emotionless lunk who can't act. That is someone who knows acting yeah. and knows how to use their body and their physicality to be extremely scary. Mm-hmm. And when I was watching this, I was reminded of that because yeah, like you say he he there's something he well he looks like a human being but there's something completely inhuman about him as well which i did feel was conveyed you could believe that there was something extremely odd and up with this guy and you could react to it you you felt there was a sense of peril like he was actually a danger to the people around Mm -hmm. him and uh, i mean i I don't necessarily think this film's a horror film, so to speak. I think it plays more like a thriller. I mean, it's certainly the use of space as well, like when he's walking up to when she's asleep in the bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and, you, you, and because obviously the depth of the set, it builds that natural suspense. I mean, we've seen that thing many, many times now, and it's kind of been diluted through the ages by cinema. But seeing him come towards her, there was a real. I, I, I felt quite creeped out by it for sure. Absolutely. Um, I, and I would actually say I suffer from. Um, a condition called night terrors where I have massive nightmares and watching this last week um, that evening I went to bed and I had an absolute humdinger <laughs> culminating in my neighbour knocking on my door at half past four in the morning to make sure I wasn't being murdered so this film is obviously has triggering capabilities for you know for, for, for inducing terror absolutely I mean watching him like slide along those walls before he enters those stairs I mean he has a very ambiguous nature and he has an androgynous look and his movements. I mean, it is an extension of that expressionist image that the film is building. And he, he's more he's more of, of an object, more than a person, really. Yeah, I mean, and you watch that when he grabs her when she's in bed. And the way he puts his hand on her chin yeah. is so weird. Because he's kind of got... I don't know, it's like his claw... He's, grabbed it like a claw you don't know if he's going to kill her or kiss her basically yeah and i mean i I, again i i would be surprised if there wasn't some inspiration for for heat from heath ledger in 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 dark knight because certainly the the hair the way it's kind of dangling in front of him and the the pale face and it's a scary scary creation for Hmm. sure absolutely yeah um let me see here We were talking about the the framing device earlier, and from what I've read, that seems to have been like heavily discussed uh, within film history, um, and it is before the the original screenplay it was found. There was uh, an art historian named Siegfried Krakauer who made or he wrote a famous book called From Caligari to Hitler, and it it basically talks about the rise of Nazism foretold by the preceding years uh, of German films, which kind of reflected a world of wrong angles and lost values. And Krakauer, he basically says that Caligari is responsible for the rise of Nazism. And he argues that 
German society consciously or subconsciously, sorry, it needs and wants a tyrant. They have an innate obedience for authority and um, they have an unwillingness to rebel uh, against an authority who's being mischievous. And the film, in his view, it encourages escape as a strategy that really the framing story turns what could have been a revolutionary story into a conformist one. Um, And he argues that the Weimar Republic, they imposed this framing device on the film. Uh, however, the um, the original screenplay was discovered and the framing device actually was included in this. So that really undermines everything that he has said. And he it should be noted that Krakow wrote the book, I think, 20 years after, after the film was released or after he had seen it last. And, and he wrote don't forget, he wrote it whilst he was in America exactly and you as, as well and I mean this was a massive red flag for me when I began to because I read that as yeah. well and I was thinking what's the motivation mm-hmm. for a German in America to kind of you know he's an academic wasn't he so yeah. to kind of demonstrate his I don't know anti-Nazi fascist exactly. credentials than write a book that basically says. Well, you know, even in German art, they've been prepping themselves mm-hmm. um, for long. And also, I find it slightly troubling because it's kind of suggesting that to, 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 to say that they can, this is something that they subconsciously want, that there's almost an element of the fact that you're removing responsibility from the masses mm-hmm. for the rise of Nazism. Uh, do you see what I mean yeah, when yeah, I, yeah. I say you're that? Removing, like it's something like they didn't. You're removing responsibility yeah. from the people and letting them know that every German is a conformist German. Yeah, like basically sort of saying, well, you know, they were subconsciously just going along mm-hmm. with it because that's what they do within the German psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, there's a familiar. There's actually another thing, a kind of similar area within history at the moment going around about drug abuse amongst the Third Reich, and. I found it, I can't remember the book's bio or who it's by, but I have, I've certainly read it. And one of the things that I found about it was it was almost sort of saying, well, they were all on drugs, so they didn't really know what they were doing. <laughs> almost like you know, when you when you say something stupid when you're drunk, you know, you blame it on the booze. And it's just kind of like, and I, I didn't, it didn't quite fit with me. Mm. I, I sort of thought, mm, you know, and it was incidental anyway, what the, the claims of this book. And when I was reading that, I did find it a little bit troubling because I was thinking it, it's very easy retrospectively. Yeah to go back and say you could write a convincing argument now that say for example computer games have instilled in us a sense that we need to conquer and fight that the the imagery of computer games has led to the fact that now we kind of we go around invading Iraq you could come up with some nonsense Mm -hmm. like that you know you could look at all these computer games that have desert imagery you know something like that and it seems this kind of very tenuous linking of the of the two, mm. and yeah, I'm I'm not sure if I'm completely down no. with it. I mean, you you could argue that he is wrongly incarcerated to be silenced, and that this is really a warning to the public rather than just a mere portrayal of their subconscious desire to be ruled. That it's more of a wake up call, which is what I really think. It's not about offering an escape, but rather about bombarding the audience with with visuals that implicitly and explicitly wants about complacency and it kind of serves as a grim reminder of what they've just been through exactly yeah i i think it's not 
patronising the audience. It's saying bad things happen. I mean, this you, film is it, you, everything but patronising. I mean, it's incredibly complicated yeah. in my eyes. So, yeah, yeah, but it's not saying to the to the audience viewing it. You know, here's this film. He's, everything's going to be yeah, fine yeah, yeah, at exactly. the end. Yeah, yeah. And it's you. Know, I mean, people who are watching this. I mean, it was a massive hit, which which kind of surprised me, I guess. But you know, people who would have been watching this, if you think of the trauma of mm. war, I mean, and and just you know, the amount of people who would have been killed, who you know would have been killed, family, friends, and whatnot. I don't think that the the toll on the civilian population was as horrific as it would be in the next mm. war, and yet, certainly infrastructure wise. Um, the country wasn't as decimated, and uh, you know, the, the towns weren't leveled in the, on, to the same degree. But this would still had a massive impact on society. And you would have gone to the cinema. One would assume you would go to escape. And you, I think we, we, as we get onto the, the, the documentary that we what we watched, there is an escape. The, the next cycle of films is very much about escapism and kind of redefining kind of the heroes of Germany's past. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a film that deals with the present and it deals with the the immediate past as well you know germany was a country don't forget where the reparations were going to be horrendous the um much of the country was um occupied um it, you know it was going to have to pay for the war basically and i think what this film kind of does is say you know life's pretty crap out crap out there and we know that if we give you a kind of fake happy ending that's not really it's not going to wash with you and it's a very i think a very honest film in the fact that it doesn't try it's, it's not an avatar no. is it i mean people said that avatar was so successful because of the economic crisis and going to pandora was just this way of escaping mm. it you know bollocks <laughs> and this is like the anti-avatar it's like you know hey everything's pretty crap and here comes a story which basically says you know no matter what you do at the moment we're all going to be in this kind of this prison that we found ourselves in at the end of the mm. war i mean even in the the real objective world that the film is portraying there's still there's still something off there's still something like discerning and nightmarish about that world as well in the garden the i noticed that the trees hanging over them it sort of resembled like legs of a spider or tentacles or something and even on the floor inside the asylum there was these kind of black and white lines going uh, going back and forth so there's an an uneasiness and insecurity about what we are watching and what is what is the real objective world uh, so to speak yeah this is another thing about it. when's this film set that's a good question i i, I don't know it exists in its own time and space. Yeah. That, that, that's, why, that's one of the other factors that I found complete. And to, to, to use a really weird example, it, I mean, when I have like um, these particularly awful dreams that this film, this film actually triggered, I can never really, I, I can, when I've, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people, I've even been to the like, you know, psychologists about and whatnot. And one of the things I find is I can never really define the situation that I'm in when I have them. Mm. I, I can't give any details. It seems like I don't know if it's in the past, present, or some kind of weird, kind of alternate reality or whatever. And this is what I when I took when I watched this film, I, I I thought, well, it could be set in the present. It could be set in the past. There seems to be a very sort of grey, you know, aspect to it where you're not really certain, and you can insert that. And I think that's kind of one of the rings. It's archetypal nature. You can insert it. That could be your mm-hmm. town. I mean, I think we get the name of the town, but the fact that it looks so... There's no... 
other than it, it doesn't look like it has much individuality to it. It just seems to be this kind of tall, kind of jagged rock almost mm. jutting out the ground. Um, and yeah, yeah, I, 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 it certainly adds to the, the the overall kind of aesthetic weirdness of it. Absolutely, yeah. And I feel like there's no real answer to this duality of the the world as a or the film as a merely straightforward story, or it being more like a symbolic story with you not knowing really if it's just his mind out of balance or is the entire world out of balance really and I, I think that's what makes it such a fascinating and memorable and visually fetching films that i've ever seen i mean all i can say i've never seen anything like it i mean one of the things that it did remind me of which i really want to go back and watch mm. now um is dark city yeah 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 the prize film because yeah, because I was sort of watching it, thinking this reminds me of that you know that, that kind of when the kind of the, the city changes and reality changes to suit what you know these these guys that are manipulating this place, you know they're trying to kind of they're they're messing around with it in order to kind of understand what the, what the subjects are doing and it, it it dawned on me. I mean, I can't believe it wasn't that wasn't an inspiration for it. No, it had to have been yeah, and also other films like. Fritz Lang's film um, Metropolis uh, M, certainly. Billy Wilder's films. I mean, Billy Wilder, he certainly portrayed the subjective reality of his characters in a huge way. He must have been influenced by Expressionism and this film. And Tim Burton as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and every single yeah, Tim I Burton mean, definitely. film. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of... I mean, I'm not a huge Tim Burton fan anyway, no. so... Um, I can't, I, can't, I can't say, but thing, but yeah, I was watching it thinking. I recently watched Batman Returns, my girlfriend, yeah. and this instantly made me think mm-hmm. of that film. Um, also, and it's strange. have you seen like um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, the other side uh, music video? That is uh, an homage to no. this uh, film. Actually, it's quite uh, quite oh, really? visually interesting. So, well, I'm a fan of. I'm I'm a, well, I'm a big believer in um, Nick Cave's um, comment regarding Red Hot Chili Peppers, which was. Whenever he hears something shit on the radio and asks what it is, the answer is invariably red hot chili peppers. <laughs> and uh, I'm afraid to say I'm, I'm I'm firmly with Nick on that one. I'm, I, will, I will check it out. But no, it's it's a really interesting film, and I think it's possibly time to kind of discuss its overall legacy because I don't necessarily think that the doc the cabinet of Dr. Gallagheri is celebrated perhaps as much as i thought it was hmm. and i especially when it comes to uh, because i was thinking oh this film must obviously kind of appear in um you know various top 100s and it really doesn't why do you think that is i i i don't know i think I, i'm not sure if it's the fact that the director didn't really do didn't have as didn't have as prolific or as certainly as notable a career as his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that plays a part of it. And I think it's theatricality in the age of the director as auteur and our kind of what we know about the language of cinema. I don't know if that somehow plays a part in the kind of the feeling about it. I mean, to give an example, I think in the in the poll of um, Sight and Sound in twenty twelve. I think this film's like 265. Wow. Hmm. Which, and let me just double check that just to make sure I'm not, it's not number two and I'm like, <laughs> that's a crap. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it is interesting because usually this film 
from what I can remember, it never comes up on those like top 20 films ever made. Uh, is usually left by the wayside on those films, and I think. Okay, so, okay, sorry, just sorry, just to yeah. interrupt. Um, it took it was two hundred thirty fifth in the poll of eight hundred forty six critics, and three hundred fifty eighth place in the poll of directors. Hmm. And that seems insane yeah. to me. I, I, I. I mean, I, th- I think that the the convoluting narrative is a contributing factor in that one because it is difficult to remember what the film is about even though it's visually fetching. But you would think, I mean, you you would think for something so unique and so out mm-hmm. there that people would go crazy about it. And it, I mean, that, that was one of my kind of surprises because I, I was expecting to read so much more about it and to kind of see it celebrated a lot mm. more. And I didn't, I didn't get that kind of. Um, well, I, I certainly didn't find that amongst the kind of the world of academia. It seems to be kind of a little bit of an outsider oddity, I guess. In yeah, a way. absolutely. Hmm. Interesting, because and also Robert Wiener, he he isn't a well-known director. I don't think he's no, made anything like said, he's, other than this. No, basically, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he did. He, he did make yeah, a fair yeah, yeah. few films, but nothing that ever came close to this. And I, I, I think that's probably why we don't talk about him as much as we possibly thought that we might mm-hmm. do. I see that he has a few other films that he is known for: is Crime and Punishment, and also a film called Night of the Rose. And I, w- I would be interested in checking those out at least to see. Like, what is his style of filmmaking? And did he contribute anything to those films? Or, what, like, what is his mark on the films? Yeah, I know he tried to remake this film. I know he tried to, he took it to okay. Hollywood. And um, there was, he did try to get it redone um, many times, actually. I think there was talk of a prequel as hmm. well. There was a genuine attempt on his part to kind of get it out there. And it does seem strange because when the film was, um, when we think about it, it's kind of a, as an art house film. It's just a mainstream film at the time, and it did do really well. Yeah. It was very popular, and you know, critics seem to love it. And when you know, audiences seem to really, you know, seem seem to like it. But it it seems like a film. Like I said, said, it seems a film that has a massive reputation, but it doesn't quite seem to have the kind of the place in film history that its reputation suggests, which. I think certainly it's one of the first films I think we've ever talked about on this podcast that certainly falls into that category. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Did you watch that uh, from Caligari to Dr. Hitler, or to Hitler um, documentary? I did, yes. yes. What, did you, what did you think about that? I, I'd seen it, I think I'd seen it a few years ago, uh, but I couldn't remember it, so I watched it again. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. I loved yeah? it. Um, I didn't, uh, I mean, I, I felt like, I mean, we kind of get into the psychoanalytical aspects of the fact that they were trying to kind of, you know, lay the foundation, as it were, the, the central psychological premise for the fact that th- these films have been kind of paving the way for, for mm. Hitler. Um, I'm not necessarily sure I was completely down with mm. that, but as a massive fan of history, I loved the way in which it showed the, the kind of the, the, the kind of the build up from Germany from the war in the intervening years and how what was going on in society was reflected in yeah. films and you had obviously this kind of the oppression imagery the hands over cities that you see in M and 
this kind of mining German folklore mm-hmm. for these kind of heroes to reinforce, you know, make Germany great again. This is you know, yeah. the, the, what was going on and the, the kind of the, the imagery. I'm a massive fan of Lenny Ruschenthal films. I really love them. And the fact that you kind of got nuggets of information about the mountain film. You know, this kind of genre, this, this, the, the, the German version of the Western was the mountain film. I, I, I really, really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. I thought it could have done slightly more inputs from Talking Heads from Mac. There seems to only be about two or three people who it kept going back to. And I would like to have had a more diverse selection of people yeah. commenting on the film. But, I mean, as a, as a feature, as a reason to buy it, to double dip, um, on this release, yeah, I absolutely loved it. What were your thoughts on it? I mean, I think uh, I really, I really enjoyed it. I did, but I, I did want more differing opinions on it, and perhaps a bit more focus on the film itself more than necessarily the or the film itself in terms of more how it influenced um, proceeding or. Um, films that came after it um i thought that it was quite interesting in the way that they argued that it um that it tapped into that cultural and social context of the time um and that it kind of conveyed what was going on at the time rather than it i don't think it argued that it influenced history but rather that it was influenced by history in my eyes yeah, it reflects yeah, history. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's that's how. Right. And I mean, you know, to, to do a massive plug for Masters of Cinema here, it's fairly obvious, and it only dawned on me really to the extent this how much and how many films of German silent cinema they have mm-hmm. released. And the thing about it, I was watching this. Um, I was watching it, thinking I need to watch these films now. You know, I, I really want it. But I, I find that when I watch documentaries about film, yeah, I always come up, come away with a list about all the films I need to watch afterwards. And certainly um, loads of the Fritz Lang stuff, I was like, I, I really need to get on board yeah, with this. Absolutely. I, I talked about it before we started recording that I tried to watch The Nibelungen and uh, it, it fell under those <laughs> those films that I need to I need to rearrange my mind before I sit down and watch it. I can't watch it right after finishing something i have to make time in my calendar get ready for it and set off time yes um it's a bit the investment yeah. isn't it i mean we're talking about a four or five hour film that's 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 a long mm-hmm. film and like i said before we, we started recording i'm not sure the best way of doing it now is to kind of break these films up into pieces mm-hmm. and and really kind of you know just so you can kind of focus on them. but again that part of me says you know you're a film you're a film snob you should be able to uh you should be able to deal with these so but I really, really, you know, I, I, just the imagery, that bit where he's fighting that kind of dragon thing. And I'm like, this, is, this looks absolutely great. Yeah. But I had to, I was reminded by the documentary from Caligari um, when I saw like this, this blonde, half naked, bare chested German white man <laughs> fighting the dragon. I mean, you, you couldn't not think about the Aryan race and Germany and Nazism. Yeah, well, I mean, Nazism, it, it, it did exactly what those films yeah. did, which was just mine its history for this kind of mythological nonsense mm-hmm. and, and kind of convince everyone it was actually mm-hmm. true. Um, and yeah, yeah, you can see that in it. And it's, it's, it's a scary film. It's a scary film, in fact, because you can see, you know, where they got it from. I mean, like, I mean, you know, you need only do um, a, a brief kind of you know, investigation into the history of Nazis. They believe they were, in, in, they were 
descended from people from Atlantis and all kinds of utter garbage. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was like utter nonsense. But there seems to be this kind of this wanting to bring the mythic into reality. Mm. Um, yeah, that was kind of the premise of of a lot of the things they were doing, and these films do show mm. that. You know, they, they bring they bring that to life. Um, it, <clears throat> And it's interesting how many of these filmmakers got the hell out of Germany, especially um, Fritz Lang. I think it was suggested that he, he kind of, in one of the Mabuse films, um, suggested that, that Hitler wrote Mein Kampf from an insane inside. Yeah, did you? Um, because I was going to ask about the the first uh, Mabuse film. Have you seen that one, the silent version? I've seen them all now. I, they, they sort of merge into one okay. a little bit. But what, again, watching that film, I want to go and watch it. Yeah, them yeah, again. because the first and the third one, I haven't seen. I've seen the second one, and it's awesome, of course. And we've talked about this, I think, on a previous episode. But uh, I really want to go back to the first one now. Um, yeah. But I think, I think that is one that is referencing a man who's writing um, within, a, uh, within a jail, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember right now, so... Yeah, and the other thing about it as well that's documentary is um, the fact that it's in, it's a Blu-ray as well. I think really helps it. It's certainly like the um, the clips as mm-hmm. well look fantastic on it. Like that stuff from the Mousse films where the where the they were at the cinema, but the cinema's coming to life and they were walking outside. That they're walking into the yeah, cinema yeah, yeah. as it were. Yeah, it looks amazing. Mm. Okay, I think we reached the end of my notes. Um, what about you? yeah, most certainly. Yeah. So, kind of concluding thoughts. Um, what, what will you say about Dr. Caligari to our listeners? Well, I think the thing I'm going to take out of this film is the fact I can see its influence on contemporary cinema. I, I can, I, you know, like we said, I can see it in Dark City. I can see it in Tim Burton. It makes me want to go and watch more films that it's been influenced by. I would love there to be more information. I, I'd, I'd love to have had um, Werner's career be slightly more prolific. I would like to see kind of how he kind of moved on from this mm. style. But what we have is definitely a cinematic oddity. It is unlike anything that, I mean, if you watch it, think about it, it's contemporary time, all the films that were coming out. It's unlike anything that was made at the time. It's an incredibly bold um, coming together of art, theatre and mm. film. And it, it's completely unique within its place in film history. And like I said, I'm kind of surprised that it's not, celebrated a great deal more and it's like i feel a little bit sorry for it in a way i think it needs it yeah i think it's definitely an underestimated or underappreciated film uh i watched something like madame dubery before uh in preparation for this uh recording and this is such a leap in artistic achievement in my eyes in terms of the visuals and in terms of how the plot is incredibly um or not the plot but the thematic values of the film are so high for me that i'm i, I was uh, what am i trying to say i was uh, I, I couldn't wait to like record my thoughts on it because i had so much to say so much to talk about it it made me want to discuss the film itself really and for a film to have such power over its views that it wants to entice you to have a discussion about it. I mean, it deserves to be seen by more people, I think. Yeah, certainly. It's, again, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm kind of being a kiss-ass towards master cinema, but I'm so glad that you can get it on 
on Blu-ray, and it's a great Blu-ray mm. as well. It looks really well, yeah. Um, it, it does. And the other thing I would say, the music, the soundtrack on this film is possibly the best I've mm. heard for a silent film. It really added to the atmosphere, mm. and it really added to the nuances of some of the performances. Um, and it, I think it was in surround sound as well. And it, yeah, it was, a, it was a really kind of enveloping cinematic experience. Mm. I watched um, Variety, uh, the recent Muscle Cinema release. And in that film, there were three scores and none of them really fetched me at all. So I had to turn them off and just had some own music playing in the background, really. So music, musical scores for me that aren't original can really be a hit or miss for me. But uh, it certainly worked for me in Caligari, yeah. Yeah, and I would actually, um, here's a slight recommendation for anyone watching silent German films. And if you've got a Blu-ray or a DVD where the soundtrack is not not so great, I have found the perfect artist to watch these films. And get on it, it's a guy called Trent Moller. He's a Danish DJ. Um, his albums are easily available on Spotify. And trust me, it adds just the right... It's not banging techno. It's not going to make your fillings fall out. And for some reason, it just works perfectly with obscure German silent films. <laughs> so get on Trent Moller, because it saved me a couple of times now. I have to be brutally honest with you when I've been watching this. Excellent. Um, we'll make a link to it on our notes then. For yes, I will Excellent. Do, yeah. So, uh, well, I think that about covers it for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, I think the next episode we will, or we have a couple of episodes lined up uh, now, including um, guest spots from the Criterion cast as well. So that'll be interesting. And also from uh, Hunter. So yes, definitely episodes to be looking forward to. Um, what's next for you uh, on the 24 Frames cast? Um, I'm going, well, I've just actually done, recorded an episode on the Projection Booth podcast on The Grand Illusion, which was great fun. I'm looking at bringing out an episode on Easy Rider and trying to convince people why it isn't just a load of hippie nonsense and it's absolutely brilliant. So that should be kind of dropping quite soon. And um, yeah, I've got a few things lined up, a couple of guests coming on board. So there should be kind of quite a lot more coming out. Great. Uh, Also to our listeners who aren't subscribing to uh, The Cinematologist uh, their latest episode, it featured David Blakesley, who has been a guest on our show many a times, and he's uh, guesting, talking about Basil Dearden's film. So that is an absolute recommendation for those who haven't listened to that episode yet. So do that, please. Um, um, the other thing as well I would ask listeners to do um, is um, when it comes to leaving reviews, um, I've had a, a, quite an, an upsurge in reviews on the other podcasts and ratings and things like that and it has really helped with subscribers so if you can take the time and effort to do that it would be greatly appreciated even if it's just giving it a rating out of five on itunes really does mm. help right so uh, you can find us on itunes you can find us on any podcasting device uh, go to mockcast.blogspot.com um, you can also find us on criterion cast and facebook and instagram and twitter and all those fun sort of places so until next time thank you for listening and goodbye